Welcome back to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. This is the Caribbean edition of Raise Your Average. I'm in the Bahamas. Mike Philbrick is in Cayman Islands as usual. And Darius Dale is coming to you from New York, upstate New York. Yeah. Upstate New York. We're in uh, Saratoga. Yeah. Did you say Saratoga? Yes, sir. Where the ponies, where the ponies run. That's right. <laughs> That's a history place. Yeah, you know, we love that. <laughs> Saratoga here. Springs. Yeah. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. So we've got a great addition for you today. There's a uh, uh, late summer update with Darius Dale, chief strategist and founder at 42 Macro LLC. Darius, it's great to have you on. Really excited to get your update. I know things seem to be going as expected from uh, some of our earlier discussions last year and this year. And there are probably a lot of people who thought, you know, I, I told you so. But I'm, I'm thinking that you might have something different to say as well, besides the obvious. And yeah, uh, yes, that there are maybe some, some, some surprises, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Look, at, look at the world today. You got the U.S. dollar <laughs> breaking out, rates getting new highs, the yield Absolutely. curve inverted for even longer. I can't wait to dig into this. What, what's the economic growth look like? What are the leading indicators on employment looking like? And how are they... Uh, setting us up for the next sort of six to 12 months. I'm, I'm very keen to uh, hear what you have to say, Darius. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, thanks for having me get on. It was a pleasure to connect with you guys. Uh, if I can sort of provide a little bit of a background on kind of where we are, uh, where we've been with respect to uh, some of these uh, key dynamics in the economy and markets, and then where I think we're headed and we can unpack, obviously, uh, any of that uh, to your liking. So I'll start on the growth side, at least with respect to the U.S., since last summer, we've been very much in the camp that the U.S. economy was going to remain resilient. I think we authored that view. Uh, so not to take a victory lap, but it's certainly well-deserved because it yeah. did come from our research process. Um, and, I, and I do believe a lot of those factors that were supporting uh, growth at the time are still persistent. Um, and so we do believe that resiliency is likely to carry over uh, into the beginning of next year, which I don't think is particularly um, uh, not consensus at this point, but it certainly was going back a year ago when we, when we authored the call. Uh, on the inflation front, uh, I will say we have been surprised by the pace of immaculate disinflation. Uh, we have, we obviously inflation has been um, decelerating uh, cyclically, but the, the magnitude of the deceleration that we've seen thus far in inflation is historically anomalous. Uh, you typically do not see these kinds of um, this kind of positivity with respect to inflation outcomes ahead of a recession. You typically need to go into and through a recession really to get inflation to move the way that it has moved in recent quarters which suggests it does add some support to the view that some large element of this inflation that we experienced in 2020, 2021, and into 2022 was in fact transitory. Now, there's obviously an element that it's likely to be untransitory in the sense that we have a very tight labor market, historically tight labor market by many metrics. Um, and ultimately, that's con you know continuing to put upward pressure on wages that are well above um, levels that are consistent with 2% inflation. So that's sort of our second saga on inflation that I think as investors, we're going to have to deal with in the coming quarters. Um, and then lastly, with respect to policy, I don't think anything has really changed with respect to the Fed. 
you know, the Fed is very much, it seems like they want to be done. Uh, the market's effectively pricing them to be done. I do believe there's upside risk to policy rates, but at the end of the day, I don't think policy rates matter as much as they have in recent business cycles. And we could talk about uh, why that is the case uh, here today. And then lastly, looking globally, because we don't just uh, myopically focus on the U.S. at 42 Macro, we're a global macro, systematic global macro advisor. Um, you know, with respect to China, it's pretty clear that the Chinese uh, economy is, is decelerating uh, pretty markedly. Um, I think we, you know, again, you know, we've had a good year, so I don't, I don't want to mince words about this, but, you know, we, we authored the call back in January that said, hey, if China does not, you know, sort of add large scale fiscal stimulus to their reopening process, it's very likely that their economy was going to, you know, sort of reopen back into the structural liquidity trap that it was mired in prior to COVID. And that's exactly what we've seen on the tape of this year. Uh, with respect to Europe, uh, we have European growth starting to falter, but remaining somewhat resilient relative to the consensus narrative out there on Europe. Uh, European inflation is, is, is actually quite sticky, particularly in the Eurozone and UK economy. So that's creating a little bit of a bond market volatility, which I think has been recently augmented by the Bank of Japan tweaking yield curve control, which we think they're likely to do again in October. So I know that's a lot. Uh, we can unpack any of that and ultimately what it ultimately means for asset markets as well. Wow. Yeah, that was a mouthful. <laughs> so what, what are the, so what is what is underlying the the uh, persistent economic strength in the face of you know structural changes in supply chains um suppose tight labor markets would be would be a part of that um what, what are you seeing there that, that's making the economy so robust at this, at this point in time yeah, 100%. Mike, I uh, appreciate you asking that question. So uh, every month we put out our macro scouting report presentation that's designed to help investors sort of get up to speed with what our systematic portions of our process are signaling, to get up to speed on some of the drivers of global liquidity and how that's likely to change and impact asset markets. And then we go through what we call our sort of modal outcome, left tail risk and right tail risk scenarios where we try to help investors, you know, sort of understand the full distribution of, of economic outcomes. And again, we put this out at the beginning of every month. And uh, right now there are 10 factors contributing to our resilient U.S. economy thing, most of which are likely to be persistent for at least a couple more quarters. Uh, number one, you have near record cash on household balance sheets. Um, we're, about, we're tracking around north of 4.5 trillion in terms of checkable deposits on household balance sheets. That number is at around 3.3% of total assets. You have to go all the way back to the 1960s to see a share of total assets uh, that high for the household sector. Uh, we have near record cash on corporate balance sheets. So we just shy of $2 trillion of, of checkable deposits on corporate, corporate balance sheets. And again, this is not even including money market fund exposure. This is just checkable deposits on corporate balance sheets. You got to go back to, you know, again, the 1970s or 1960s or 70s to see the share ratio of checkable deposits as a percent of total, um, of total assets on, on corporate balance sheets. So consumers and corporates, the private sector in the U.S. is feeling quite rich because they feel quite liquid. Um, number three, we have private sector income and wealth have outpaced inflation uh, throughout this business cycle. Um, you know, obviously inflation has been a, a real bugaboo in, in, in recent quarters, but the reality is since the start of this business cycle, things like, you know, net net worth and and, and, and consumer income, nominal employee compensation, et cetera, nominal, nominal disposable personal income have all outpaced inflation, which is why, you know, we continue to see some resiliency on behalf of consumers who continue to spend. Um, then we have number four, we have limited credit cycle vulnerabilities in this particular business cycle. Um, when you think about you know, some of the things that actually cause recessions, typically you have capital the confluence of capital misallocation and, and, and financial tightening is what creates a, a recession, particularly through the lens of the, corporate, um, of the credit channel. And we just did not see the kind of adverse selection or the capital misallocation in this business cycle that we have just seen historical cycles uh, leading up to recession. So that would suggest that we have limited credit. Number five, we have limited exposure to the volatile manufacturing sector. 
Um, so if you think about the manufacturing sector share of, of GDP, it's only 18%. Share of uh, total uh, non-farm payrolls is only 14%. These numbers are way down, much, much, much down from uh, by much higher ratios in previous cycles. And the reason that matters is that when you go back and you study um, the business cycle, particularly the drawdown in non-farm payrolls that you typically see in, a, in and around a recession, and for the manufacturing sector tends to account for, on a median basis, 98% of the net job loss we, we experience in, 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 a, in a recession. And obviously that number has declined uh, as, the, as the economy has changed over time. But what it ultimately means is that we now have a more services-oriented economy, and the services sector is far less volatile from the perspective of employment, which obviously is the, the tail wagging the dog on the broader business cycle. Uh, number six, we have longer, long, and variable lags in this particular business cycle. So whether you look at the duration that we're observing uh, in corporate, uh, you know, the corporate credit, or if you look at uh, duration in the mortgage back uh, market, mortgage market as well, uh, we're seeing duration levels that we haven't seen really since the early 1980s. And you're also seeing the spread between uh, the yield on those uh, on those indices relative to the coupon on those indices as high as it's been in, in several decades as well. And so what it ultimately means is that even though the Fed has hiked interest rates, people aren't refinancing or need to refinance because right. for two reasons. One, that they've termed out their debt. Um, you know, we had you know pretty much record uh, low interest rates going back a few years ago. But they also folks who would otherwise you know look to refinance on an opportunistic basis are clearly not seeing that opportunity given this, this sort of, you know, this very high spread between what they can finance at and market rates relative to what they're currently paying in coupon form. So that's kind of putting some stasis in both the housing market and in the corporate credit market from a refinancing standpoint, which just means those longer, long and variable lags just really haven't caught up yet. Uh, I'll be quick on the last ones because they're all pretty easy. In uh, this same concept, number seven is that we have a perfect storm for new housing development. And so if you think about this this concept I just, just mentioned with respect to you know that spread between uh, a corporate uh, what, what corporates are paying on their yields relative to what their, their coupons are paying and same thing with the mortgage market you're seeing this in the mortgage market as well even more granular the marginal mortgage rate we all know is somewhere around seven percent but the effective mortgage rate in the economy is somewhere around three point five percent so what you have is an economy where no one's moving and because no one's moving, no one's really feeling the impact of monetary policy with respect to the housing market. Uh, number eight, you have Bidenomics. You have uh, the government investment growing at 11.5% on a year-over-year -year basis. That's the fastest year-over-year -year rate of change we've seen in government investment since going back to the mid-1980s when Reagan was doing Star Wars. Yeah, number nine, you had a big boost in immigration last year, I want to say uh, well north of a million folks. And then lastly, we have this sort of, cool, sort of weird, funky concept that I think we're all still trying to get our hands around as economists, which is labor hoarding. You know, we've seen a sort of in influx and a, and a big resurgence in sort of income in the economy that's allowed consumers and businesses to demand more and more goods and services, but we have not seen a big influx of, of labor supply when you look at through the lens of the uh, total labor force. And so that spread between you know, the demand for goods and services relative to the supply of people who can create those goods and services has, in our view, contributed to some labor hoarding uh, in this particular business cycle, despite you know, the change in policy, et cetera. Yeah, Darius, what are your thoughts on the idea that we're in the midst of a, a mini a mini productivity boom? <laughs> we are we are definitely not in the midst of a mini productivity boom. I want to say productivity finally uh, got off the doldrums in the most recent quarter in, in Q2. I think we were we were trending somewhere around minus 50 basis points uh, on a quarter to quarter basis yeah. for about a year, year and a half, and I think we popped up to around 1.92 percent uh, in the second quarter. So we finally started to see a little bit of productivity growth, but the reality is. 
it just it's one the productivity is one of the hardest things to forecast in, in, in the economy so i don't want to have want to make too definitive of a call on that but the reality is i think we need to see a lot more evidence to suggest that we have a productivity boom or we're on the precipice of a productivity boom that might allow us to sort of you know soft land the economy and have all the good stuff uh you know in terms of getting inflation back down sustainably to two percent yeah so you so you don't think the uh the three points the the sort of huge three point seven percent up in in uh was reported from the labor department yeah the labor Q1 department Q1. reported a huge three point seven percent step up in productivity in q one and a similar increase seems very likely for q three any any chance of that coming coming to pass i know sorry i know it's outside of what you you know the the list uh of, yeah, of items that you went through. Yeah, so there's a chance that it comes to pass, but again, I, I ought to say this with all sincerity and humility, we as economists have no freaking clue on what drives productivity. <laughs> like we, we, It's always been a plug in most econometric models. It's like, yeah. all right, well, we know what all this stuff is, now here at productivity, and that's how you get the outcome you want, right? And so the reality is, right. you know, we, 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 under, we think we understand what drives productivity from a narrative standpoint, but from an econometric standpoint and actually, you know, being specific with forecasts, yeah, I haven't found anybody on the street that has an ability to do that. And so suggesting that we can take the last couple of quarters of productivity growth and extrapolate that because I think it's a very dangerous thing to do. I think what's really happened over the last couple of quarters is we've seen a lot of inflation uh, come out of the system that's sort of artificially inflating the productivity numbers alongside the broader, you know, economic statistics, broader growth. So in the moment, we've got a little bit Thanks. of a, a, a bit of a risk off sort of scenario or phenomenon going on. And, and I guess your positioning on that is that that is temporary and, and we should start or continue to have the reignition of, of equity leadership back for, to the cyclicals from the defensives and things like that, just given your, you know, your, your thoughts and, and, you know, you've got that you know, obviously the, the Chinese influence uh, still kind of meaningful in, in the United States. Um, so is it just that things are going to be lagged a little longer? Is it just going to take a little bit longer to sort of see the impact of interest rates, you know, often a two-year lag between the peak in rates and sort of its impact on the business cycle and slowing things down and then starting to show up in things like the labor statistics? Or is it that we we have this sort of set of circumstances where we're just not actually going to be able to leapfrog that, um, and 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 leapfrog the you know the debt maturity at, at, at some point, you know the rates will come down, the Fed will see that the <laughs> you know economy is slowing and and labor markets are are adapting. What, how is this? How do you think this is going to play out? Yeah, so uh, I do believe this is a viable dip for the equity market uh, from a beta standpoint. We can talk about factor dispersion sec secondarily. Uh, the reason I do believe this is a viable dip because from our perspective, in terms of our now casting for the economy, we are now casting ourselves into Goldilocks, which is growth slowing on a growth accelerating on a trending basis and inflation decelerating on a trending basis for the past five months. Um, and so based on the, the current indications in terms of our now cast models, it looks to be that that A is likely to continue for at least another month and B, the probability of achieving Goldilocks or reflation, which is another risk on a regime that the economy can experience, um, is actually reasonably high for, for an extended period of time. And so that's, you know, the distribution of outcomes with respect to growth is fairly flat, but it's fairly flat in the context of investors still being generally under position for a soft landing outcome. Um, and so that to me is, is something that could create uh, some, some more right tail risk in, in the asset markets. I'll throw a couple of statistics out at you in terms of um, 
in terms of how to think about this in the context of what still should be a recession on the horizon as, as the modal outcome, albeit in a relatively flat uh, distribution of outcomes. Uh, if you look at, you know, go back and study the sort of the previous 12 recessions in the U.S. economy, post-war recessions that we have uh, here in the U.S. economy, and you look at the year performance, the, year, the, the, the performance of the stock market in the year leading up to the peak uh, prior to a recession, what we find is that it's always extremely positive. Um, the median return is plus 16 percent um, with an interquartile range of, of plus 14 to plus 20 percent. And so that's a pretty tight, narrow range of, of really positive outcomes. There are no non-double-digit values in that, that 12, um, you know, 12, market, 12 cycle sample. And so that tells you that the market is, is very strong and very buoyant leading up to recessions. Probably as you know, my thought process around that is just bears are just getting squeezed because they put the recession trade on too soon, much like what we've seen yeah. throughout 2023. Um, that return tends to be it tends to accelerate later in the process. So if you think about the last three months of those those interval those um those those observations, the the last three months the median return is plus nine percent. So over half of the plus sixteen percent median return occurs in the last three months of the of the squeeze. And so in our view. You have to sort of time a recession in order to understand, okay, when is the market likely to actually peak for real, you know, whether or not, you know, what we experienced in July was an actual structural peak or whether or not it was a, you know, just more peak ahead of a, you know, run of the mill correction. We have several of those every year, right? And so, you know, in terms of what we find in our studies is that the, the stock market tends to peak fairly coincidentally with, you know, kind of the employment cycle, um, with, you know, kind of the peak in the employment cycle. It tends to peak on balance a median of one month ahead of the trough in the unemployment rate. Um, we sense a peak on balance of one median of one month ahead of a spike in jobless claims. So two separate indicators from two separate agencies telling you the same thing, which is the stock market is, is fairly coincident, or at least it doesn't have a significant lead time on a balance with respect to the employment cycle, which means the more the more time we spend not entering a recession or being in recession in the economy, the more likely it is that we're likely to see right tail risk accumulate uh, in, the, in the equity market from a beta perspective. I think the, the, the factor dispersion perspective, to me, is a much more difficult question to answer at this particular stage of the game. So this we know. We tend to see defensive leadership, you know, kind of, um, you know, emerge, you know, later in the business cycle and into and through, you know, kind of the early innings of recession until you typically the Fed starts, you know, responding to the recession with, you know, rate cuts, QE, et cetera, something that gives investors hope for the new, you know, kind of new uh, business cycle expansion. Uh, we're clearly well away from we're, we're all ways well we are ways away from that outcome. So you know when you think about defensive leadership, it should the market should be a defensive leadership leading into this process. The issue with defensive leadership now is that those are all the most overvalued stocks by considerable degree. You know, if you just look at the S and P, which obviously is a you know generally a defensive kind of basket, you know, given the overweight of mega cap tech and all these sort of you know kind of secular growth type names. You know, the PE, I think I want to say it's somewhere north of 20, 20 times on an next 12 month earnings basis. That's in the 86 percentile going back uh, in terms of this historical time series. Price of sales, next one, price of next 12 month sales is at 2.4. That's in the 90th percentile. Uh, EV to EBITDA, next 12 month EBITDA, that's at 13 and a half. That's in the 86 percentile. Like this is a very overvalued market from the perspective of like, anything potentially could go wrong from this particular starting point, right? You know, have a lot of stuff right. coming out of China policy changes out of Japan, sticky inflation in Europe. And don't forget, we, there's still a recession that's likely to commit some point in the next, you know, call it two quarters, uh, two to three quarters here in the U.S. Is, is there anything in the, like, as you say, the employment um, facts and figures, is there anything there on your leading indicators that's giving you a little bit more sense there too? Like anything from initial claims or um, any kind of um, 
trends developing there that are giving you some insight and in, in, or is that correlating well with that next one or two quarters we should see you know sort of uh unemployment rates starting to increase and that would be coincident with some sort of peak in in sort of asset prices for stocks uh no i would i would just uh answer that with a resounding no i mean so we track okay. a bevy of leading indicators on the on the business cycle particularly as it relates to employment uh, our favorite mm -hmm. five, we have our, what we call our Fab Five, you know, kind of recession signaling indicators, both to the downside and in, in heading into a recession, but also to the upside, you know, kind of when you're confirming that a recession, you're you're certainly in a new bull bull phase. Although I think it's easier to do uh, in market terms at the bottom of a V at the bottom of a recession than it is at the top of a business cycle. But that's neither here nor there. But so uh, I'll list those indicators out. So the University of Michigan uh, has their employment survey. Um, that number is well away from levels that have been historically consistent with recessions, entering recessions. Uh, the, the conference board have its, as its labor differential survey. Also, history, uh, the numbers, the most recent print and trends are uh, inconsistent with, you know, kind of heading into recessions. Um, you know, the pattern that we typically observe heading into recessions. We have, or we look at continuing claims as a percent of the total labor force. Um, and that number, if we track that on a three-month annualized growth rate basis, that number is well shy of, of levels that it typically is reached uh, heading into recession on a median basis. Uh, we look at uh, cyclical unemployment, which is the total number of people who've recently lost their jobs due to temp, you know, um, either being just being fired or uh, completed temporary assignments. And we track that on a three-month annualized rate of change basis. That number is well shy of levels that we've historically observed heading into recession. And only one of those Fab Five indicators, which is temporary employment, that number on a three-month annualized basis is, is contracting at a level that is consistent with heading into a recession. And so you go back and you look at those particular five indicators, which are very consistent in terms of their patterns, their trends, their levels, deltas, et cetera, uh, heading into recession, four out of those five are saying, no way, no, no just it's not even a, a something we should be discussing right now as investors. Uh, I do believe at some point in the next few quarters, we will be you know, kind of observing some of these leading indicators breaking down in an adverse manner, but we're just not seeing it yet. Uh, we have a few more. We obviously track jobless claims, uh, the four-week moving average uh, there on a three-month annualized basis, track continuing claims, the raw data on a three-month uh, annualized beta change basis. We are well shy of levels that have been historically consistent with the recessions in those particular indicators. And then lastly, we get um, uh, labor data from the NFIB survey, the ISM and the NFIB survey, whether you look at ISM employment services and manufacturing, whether you look at the employment Outlook and the NFIB data, job openings hard to fill, you know, uh, you know all this got all the kind of a labor market statistics there. And on balance, they're all suggesting that we are still a ways away from recession, albeit there's a, there's a few indicators in those particular buckets that do say things are, are not quite as rosy as, as I sound. So now, now you there is. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like you mentioned earlier that, you know, and we've been hearing about this as well, which is the fact that, you know, m most mortgage holders in the U.S. are holding 30 year mortgages. Uh, which you know they might have written two years ago at at historic lows. There was there was a record refinancing of credit in the you know in credit markets, uh, you know in the last eighteen months to two years when rates were still, you know at historical lows. So, a lot of those knock on effects of rise rising interest rates have quite a while to go before they start to impact mortgages. Mortgages, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of of the. You know, like no, nobody wants to sell their home right now because they don't want to, they don't want to roll into a, a new mortgage at today's rates. Yeah. And um, likewise, you could say the same thing, um, you know, with with corporate credit. Hundred percent. Right. I mean that they're so so. You know, all the all of those uh, prognostications about what higher credit costs were going to do to corporate America or to the consumer, 
a, a long way to go before they actually start to, you know, have a, a dire impact. It's different up here in Canada. I mean, I'm not in Canada today, but it's different like in Canada. Canada in the background, right? <laughs> yeah, this is Canada. It's different in Canada, right? Because we've got five-year mortgages at best, yeah. you know, that you can lock in. And and for the longest time, people were just, you know, most most mortgagees, most mortgagers were were going with variables because they were lower than the than the lock-ins. And then all of a sudden, you know, the lock-in rates started going up. So we, we have a much shorter more you know shorter term debt market for consumers in Canada than than most Americans are used to, um, but would you would you say that's a that's being a very that's a very big factor sort of this long lasting resiliency that we're seeing? Yeah, I think it is a big factor. That, the, I think that's the biggest factor. I don't know if I don't know if you could say it is the biggest factor. One I think the, it's a big yeah. factor in terms of timing, but it's not necessarily yeah. a big factor in terms of magnitude. Not only have we avoided recession for longer than the average investor would have assumed, you know, in terms of their positioning heading into the year, but we've also experienced a much better economy. So there's, there's all this kind of, you have to answer it from twofold. This is, I think this is the yeah. biggest factor with respect to the time component, but there's also been a delta in magnitude component that needs to be explained as well that I don't believe is explained particularly with this, this analysis. I think what's so, ultimately yeah, so while causing that. Yeah. Good. So, while we've got higher costs for, for goods, uh, we've got much higher employment levels too, right? We've got this. So, so how how long? I mean, that that I guess maybe that that begs the question. You know, how much how much longer can can this inflationary sort of plateau that we're at right now? How much longer can it last, and it can't go higher? Um, uh, you know, and and does that does that mean that the Fed is far from done, or far from not done? as not nearly as done as people think they are? Yeah, so I, I think the what's really happened in, in, in recent weeks is the market accepting higher for longer as, as legitimate policy. Um, what, I, what, what has not happened, yeah. if, you, if you look at sort of the move we've seen in rates and, and, and the long end of sovereign debt curves over the last couple of weeks, really over the last month, um, you've seen some pretty some, some, some bloody stumbers out there, Treasury yields 10 years up like 40 basis points, 50 basis points. Same thing with the UK gilt yield. Germany's now not too far behind, 20, 30 basis points. We've seen some pretty uh, some, some carnage in sovereign debt markets this, in the last month or so. And most of it has been driven by changes in floor policy rate expectations. And so we calculate terminal and floor policy rate expectations by taking the maximum value on the overnight index swap curve out to two years, and we take the floor value on the overnight index swap curve out to two years. And what we've seen is that there's been hardly any change to any of these major, um, you know, central bank uh, sovereign debt, uh, sorry, major central bank um, policy rate expectations on the terminal side, but we've seen dramatic moves in the last kind of four to six weeks on the floor policy rate side, and this is across the board with the U.S. leading the charge. And so what I think what's happened is, you know, go back to late July where we're getting confirmation of GDP, you know, accelerating again and obviously following up with the labor market report and the ISM numbers and the, you got the, um, the, the CPI numbers a couple weeks ago. You know, you've had a lot of information that's really confirmed what our models have been confirming for the past five months in the U.S. economy, which is the U.S. economy has been in Goldilocks um, in terms of our in terms of our outcast systems. And so as a function of that, investors are looking around and saying, not only has the recession not started, the economy is just doing just way better than anyone would have expected, you know. And I think, um, you know, I, I would take myself out of that anyone because we, I think, we expected a lot of this economic resiliency uh, that we've observed this year. What, it, what I think has is, is really been instructive on the fixed income side is a couple of things, you know. So you started this year with like markets pricing, or not this year, but you go back to maybe I think the height of the um, regional banking uh, crisis back in March and April, 
which, by the way, barely had any impact on credit really? statistics, which was their first tale going back. And if you look at the H8 data, and there was an H8, the balance sheet data, yeah, the H8 data that we get every Friday, every Friday we were looking at this for like a month after the, you know, the, the, these banks went under. It was like, it doesn't look like a banking panic, you know? <laughs> yeah. It looks like a lot of guys got on podcasts and tried to sound smart, like including myself for like a week. But the reality is this, it just didn't materialize in the data. And, and so from that point, we saw a, a few things that really, really concerned us about, you know, kind of sovereign debt markets that we made a pretty big call, bull call, say, hey, like you need to need to sell bonds. And this is going back to uh, early May. Uh, we said uh, the, the, the pricing on the, on the sovereign debt curve in terms of what investors are pricing in for rate cuts was, was preposterous relative to the observations that we were observing in the economy. We had about 200 basis points of rate cuts priced in for the treasure, for the Fed, versus only about 100 basis points for the ECB, Bank of Japan. We're like, that number's got to change. Uh, one of them, one of them is wrong, right? <laughs> Fed's not going to cut yeah. 200 basis points and these guys are only going to cut 100. Either we need to cut 100 basis points less or they need to cut 100 basis points more. We thought the, the, the less was the more likely outcome given the resiliency of the economy. Uh, number two, we have this very unique starting point in, in the bond market, which is very anomalous to history, not only obviously are yields just nominally low, but part of the reason yields are so nominally low is that we have this negative term premium environment, which is very unusual. We typically have positive term premium. We've only had right. negative term premium in the QE era, you know, going back when we made that call in, in early May, um, you know, we were saying, hey, look, investors are too still, they're still overly positioned for recession. I think bonds are going to go down a lot. Stocks are going to go up a lot. And we, we made that call back in early May, but focusing on the fixed income side, term premium were about nine to 60, 70 basis points at that particular time. You had 10 year break evens, uh, you know, tracking around two, 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 two and a quarter percent that time. The bond market was as priced to perfection as anything I've ever seen in my career. You know, folks want to be concerned about a, you know, 20 times equity market. Fine. That's whatever. But a bond market with those kind of prices statistics mm -hmm. in the context of an economy that, according to Atlanta Fed, is growing somewhere around 6%, which obviously is wrong, but, you know, that number could still come in around 3 to 4%. And, you know, inflation that is looking like it could easily stabilize somewhere in the 25 to 3% range. I just didn't see the possibility that bond bears, bond bulls would get paid anytime soon. And that's why we made that call back then. You mentioned earlier, too, about policy rates maybe not being as important um, as we started off the, the show. Maybe, maybe can you want dig into that a little bit more? Or have you sort of covered that yeah. or maybe explicitly cover it? Yeah, let me uh, let me show you a chart on that particular uh, on this particular subject. So uh, let me put my chart up here. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so there, there is a um, it's so if you go. So what I'm showing in this particular chart is I'm showing the, um, the, the Bloomberg Corporate Credit Index for, for the U.S. economy, the credit, credit aggregate. So for corporate credit, I um, show the, the duration on that statistics at 7.3. Uh, it's down from about nine a couple of years ago, but you know, 7.3 is basically as high as you gotta go back. You gotta go back to the late 70s, early 80s to see a number that high in terms of the, the duration of that instrument. And so it effectively tells you is that corporates have turned their debt out, which means they, their maturity walls and their need to refinance into this higher rate regime is just lower, it's as low as it's been in you know, 40 years. <laughs> and so that's something yeah. we need to be aware of as investors. Yeah. Uh, number two, if you look at the spread between the coupon and the yield in that, in that particular index, it's at 166 basis points. So you gotta go back to 2008 uh, to see a number that high. Um, you know, and, and prior to 2008, you, know, you gotta go all the way back to the early 80s to see a number this high. And what that ultimately means is that not only do we not need to refinance because the duration is so high, but we wouldn't refinance anyway if we got an opportunistic chance to do so in, in market terms because it's, it's just a lousy opportunity to refinance. I gotta, if, if I'm refinancing, I would have to pay a much right. higher yield on new debt relative to what I'm currently paying in coupon terms of my existing debt, which means 
I'm not going to refinance by from a, from you know so neither by hook nor crook are corporates coming to the market to to do anything and and, and to, to that would push them into this new higher interest rate regime. It's just going to take longer. And the same everything I just said with the corporate sector, uh, you can just repeat for the uh, for the household sector with respect to mortgages. You know the duration of the mortgage uh, the Bloomberg Mortgage Index um, is as high as it's been since the early 80s as well. And then that the spread between the um, the yield and the coupon on that particular index. Uh, is as high as it's been since the early 80s. And so, you know, again, you don't need to, folks who have mortgages don't need to go to the market to refinance because their duration is as long as it's been in a long time. But even if they wanted to, for economic reasons, it doesn't make any sense <laughs> because they're going to be, you know, refinancing into a much higher interest rate regime. And that just obviously doesn't, that's not very rational to do. So, you know, it's our view that this process is, it's going to happen. And, and folks in terms of, you know, being dragged into this higher interest rate regime you know, you know, over as time progresses, it's just going to happen slower, given the starting point of, you know, extremely long duration for these instruments. And this now record, the speed with which the Fed tightened policy created this like very big spread between what folks were paying and the yield on those, those particular instruments. And so it just, I don't think rates, you know, it's, it's not that rates do not matter. It's just that they do not matter today in this particular window of time. They will matter eventually and right, increasingly. Right as we go forward in time, but it's just, you know, you have to understand that, you know, these are some of the things that make that, you know, the sort of long and variable lag component of Fed monetary policy, you know, it really did cement that in this particular business. Like, uh, see, It seems that it was interesting that the mortgages haven't had this duration since 1982. Yeah. That's, uh, that wow. was a high interest rate environment. <laughs> yeah. And people were extending their duration then. That's probably the, they may have had to, just given the circumstances. Very interesting. Well, well, and but, isn't there a slowdown impact on? So, so I'm a corporate credit, and um, you know the markets are available at higher rates. I'm certainly, going to have to have higher hurdle rates in order to justify any new financing. I mean, not notwithstanding financing projects that I already have. Yeah. Does that? It's got to have some sort of slowing impact on the economy. But I guess we're not seeing it. So, I guess you know what? Why fuss ourselves until we see it? Hundred percent. I mean, if you look at, I want to say, corporate debt divided by the total assets is only somewhere around forty or fifty percent for the U.S. corporate sector. Their floating rate debt's only about thirty-three percent of total debt. You know, there's just like not this big, great, garing need to go spend a lot of money to do a bunch of stuff, right? Like that's just that just is what it is. And so, um, you know, don't think about you know the economy. And, and we have a lot of public sector investment as well. So, the, but the government is levering up its balance sheet to you know, create investment in the economy with the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. And I'm sure there's a bunch of other acts that you know, we're, we're all paying for as, as citizens. So uh, you know, hopefully we're getting our money's worth on it. But uh, yeah, I see the here nor there, but the reality is I, it just, it's just not like this sort of concept of a maturity wall and all this other stuff, it, it matters. It just doesn't matter on the duration that folks need it to matter on. And that's, that's the only thing I'm trying to say here. It's that yes, everyone's right about what they feel about the economy. It's just you have to you have to respect the x-axis on some of these business cycle processes. Yeah, being right and early is being wrong. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> anything in the uh, anything in the housing market that you want to highlight in, on the because uh, we we did talk about um, a little bit of that in your ten points. But is there anything further in the housing market yeah. that either yeah, like like new homes? It, yeah, first yeah, time so home buyers. What's 100%. happening there? Yeah. So this is uh, it's the number seven, actually, in terms of that list. Perfect storm for new housing development. So I'll, I'll walk you through this chart in terms of how we get to that conclusion, which is uh, if you look at a household mortgage debt as a percent of nominal disposable personal income, we're only at 63 cents on the dollar. So that's way that's kind of de-risked relative to where we were in previous cycles. The mortgage debt service ratio is only 3.9 percent of, of income. Um, that number's, I mean, 
preposterously low. I mean, like <laughs> the Fed would have to take rates to like 10, 20% for that to really matter and the duration that a lot of investors are positioned for it to matter today. Um, so that's obviously not you know an issue for, for now. It'll eventually become an issue with time in terms of respecting the x-axis. Um, but you know, I think the real interesting stuff starts in the second and third panels. So in this, um, in this spread, uh, now the spread plot here, uh, we show the spread between the effective mortgage rate uh, and the marginal mortgage rate, and it's about 350, 400 basis points wide. Um, if you look at the red and blue lines here, um, you know that. And so, in our opinion, that spread is effectively, to your point, Pierre, is really creating a lot of stasis in the housing market, right? No one's, no one. I don't know too many people who are dumb enough to trade a 3.6% mortgage for a 7.32% right. mortgage. Yeah, I'm sure none, none of it, you know what I mean? Like, if you know any of those people, let me know because I have stuff to sell them. <laughs> you know, I'm like a closet full of old clothes I'd like to sell them. But, like, but yeah. the, the reality is most people aren't that dumb. You know, like, and so, so, yeah, I got some suits that don't fit anymore from COVID. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, and so, the, you know, the reality is because of, because of the stasis that we're seeing, folks aren't putting their existing homes on the market. And so we're seeing this sort of response from the builder community on the new home sale side. Um, this blue line in this chart, which is now this ratio is at an all-time high, is the, the housing starts to existing home sales ratio. So it's the total number of housing starts as a ratio of the total number of existing homes being sold. And we're seeing that folks are just rushing in, builders are rushing in to meet this sort of, you know, kind of supply and demand imbalance in the housing market. Because again, don't forget, consumers are still flush with cash. They still have cash to, to do things with. Um, that's why, you know, you're still seeing bidding wars in, in most major uh, metropolitan areas for houses. You know, there's just this, you know, funky dynamic going on, which is a perfect storm for new housing development. Builders have to rush in to meet this demand because we know we're not going to get a, the, the, the existing supply. Uh, or sorry, we're not going right. to get the supply from the existing home sales community. Right. So isn't that isn't that Buffett's play? Didn't he buy home buyers recently or, so, or home, home builders recently? Yeah, no, Buffett. Buffett's a, obviously, I was just about to say, Buffett's obviously a better investor than me, but that'd be the dumbest thing I've said in a long time because I don't need to waste those words. Uh, <laughs> obviously, Warren Buffett is a better investor than me, uh, but the reality is we put out this information going back to the fall of last year. Yeah. We didn't make any money on it. I wish I bought home builders back then. I mean, we have clients who bought home builders and were high-fiving me for that, but like the reality is, you know, it's some, you know, the, the investing is always you, you two parts, you know, getting the, the fundamental call right. But I think more and so much more of investing nowadays, particularly since COVID. And we, you know, we're kind of in this what I want to say, kind of hyper focused market environment the market regime where it seems like news gets priced in faster. You, know, you have zero DT options that are kind of creating a lot more intraday volatility for, for equities and not, not just for equities, but, you know, for all asset classes and stuff, because we're all correlated right these days. And so I think as a function of that, you know, the behavioral side of investing is really, you know, kind of become to the forefront and what separated a lot of folks from making money in the last couple of years or at least the bare minimum last year, not losing uh, too much money. And I think, I, you know, knock on wood, we've done a, a pretty good job for our clients in both respects, both to the upside this year, but also to the downside last year. Do you think on a go forward basis from a, from a portfolio construction perspective, when, when you think through <clears throat> what's happening now currently, you know, just a, hey, a robust uh, stock market, um, bonds overpriced, having a, having a bit of a correction during that time frame, an inflationary regime potentially changing or altering what has been a largely negative correlation between stocks and bonds for the last 20 years, which is actually the unusual part. It's more usual that they are uh, correlated and, and often in these inflationary regimes, they, they tend to be more correlated. Walking it forward, do you see the passive bond portfolio sort of in that 60-40 mix 
being as resilient as it's been in the last 20 years as we approach the the potential for a coming you know just even a garden variety recession nope, <laughs> <laughs> nope. yeah so uh, that's like the, the quick funny answer for that but i'll give you a more sophisticated <laughs> answer for sure uh like that was like the second you stopped talking nope like, is good that's nope, good nope. <laughs> nope, nope. so so i uh, i believe uh, at this point i'm now the uh, I want to be, I want to, I don't want to say the godfather because I'm not that old, but like, I want to be the, the face of the 60, 30, 10 approach. That's, uh, that's how we manage that money, uh, at 42 macro in terms of our systematic, uh, case portfolio construction process. I'll, I'll speak to that, uh, later, but I do want to, uh, take a, before we get into that, uh, talk about, you know, kind of, uh, some of the things you uh, alluded to Mike, uh, with respect to, um, this sort of new inflation regime. So you, you hit on a couple points that I, I think we've all studied a lot of the same data in terms of helping us get to, which is, you know, when inflation's high. Uh, and when we mean by highs in the you know north of three to five percent, you know that's kind of the threshold where inflation starts to you know where the market starts to behave differently from a correlation risk perspective uh, in terms of stocks and bonds. Like when you when you have this sort of like zero to two and two and a half percent inflation regime, which is what we've you know experienced for a lot of part of the last thirty to forty years, but the reality not forty years, but the last kind of 25, 30 years, you know that's typically where stocks and bonds are inversely correlated because the only thing that really matters in that regime is, is growth or it's growth, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you could take your mind off inflation, but when inflation is below zero or or above zero, you tend to be or sorry above materially above that threshold, um, then you typically um, you typically see positive correlation, and this is data going all the way back to the eighteen hundreds. You know, as we're studying, uh, citing the case today that we, we performed analysis on with respect to Kay Schiller. So we have to accept the fact that if we are potentially in a higher inflation regime, potentially one that is, you know, with a three handle as opposed to a two handle as the underlying you know, kind of uh, trend of inflation, we need to accept the fact that we might have this persistent positive correlation or at the bare minimum, not inverse correlation like we were so used to, uh, you know, kind of in the 60-40 uh, era of dominance in the last kind of 20-25 years. So in this chart here, I'm showing our secular inflation model. And what this model is designed to do, it's a dynamic factor model that's designed to project the underlying trend of inflation. And so how it does that is, is, is capturing delta adjusted z-scores for all these various factors that we've shown in our work to be either correlated or co-integrated uh, with the underlying trend of inflation. And, and what we find is that, you know, when you kind of look at and you summarize all those, you know, those factors and deltas, um, you know, relative to the previous decade where we had uh, inflation track trending at 1.6%, and this is core PCE inflation, our model is suggesting that that trend, based on the movement that we've seen in these, in these variables in the past few years, is somewhere around 25 to 3%. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, right? Like 1.6 to 25 to 3% is like, whatever, who cares? And if it's 2.5%, I actually don't care. But if it's yeah. 3% or if it's higher than 3%, if there's forecast error to the upside, and I think commodities could easily take you to forecast error that's uh, to the upside on this particular projection, then we're talking about the unit, the, the underlying trend of core PCE that the time series oscillates around is going to go from 1.6% to 3%, which ultimately means the Fed is either going to have to change its, its, its inflation target from two to three percent, in order to maintain, in order to maintain their ability to be an active participant in financing the, the, the you know, the treasury, which I believe they, they're going to be forced to politically, um, you know, by hook or crook. Um, and if that's, if they don't change their inflation target, then they're going to be consistently and constantly leaning on the economy from the perspective of tight monetary policy in order to create the demand for bonds that way. 
They're either going to use their own balance sheet to create demand for bonds um, in terms of helping the, 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 the Treasury, the, the fiscal authority, um, you know, finance and capitalize itself this decade, or they're going to have to destroy the economy and make us all want to be long bonds anyway because they're constantly leaning on the economy. So I don't know how they're going to choose to do this. I think in a fourth turning regime, it's very likely that these guys are going to have to just change their inflation target and get with the program because I don't see I don't really see any really ability for any government, whether it be monetary authorities or fiscal authorities, to implement material austerity uh, in this particular decade. And so that brings me back to uh, my to um, our conversation about portfolio construction. So we, we've implemented uh, we, we you know earlier this year we introduced a systematic uh, portfolio construction process uh, loan only for our investors. Um, you know it was kind of with the accept you know it was kind of you know so had a great 2022 worst quarter of my career in, in Q4 of 2022. Like just everything I'd said and did was wrong. If you took the opposite side of it, it was kind of like, uh, was it George Casanza um, <laughs> in Seinfeld? Bizarro world? Bizarro world, yeah. yeah. <laughs> everything I said and did was wrong for like three months. Opposite. <laughs> and so, um, you know, kind of in, in, in take, using that as an opportunity to get better as an investor, we went back to the drawing board. We actually kind of, you know, say, hey, look, you know, what, what I'm best at doing is building, you know, quantitative models that work and ultimately are backed by, you know, proven quantitative techniques. And, and so we bit and designed a, you know, soup to nuts, long only investment strategy that is designed to help investors outperform that kind of standard 60-40 approach with the, the idea that, hey, look, I don't think 60-40 is going to work the way it used to. You have trillions upon trillions of dollars of assets out there that are, you know, kind of to some degree are mimicking or, or explicitly, you know, sitting in some form of 60, 40 or 70, 30 or 80, 20 based on the, you know, the trillions of dollars that have been accumulated in target date funds in, in recent in recent decades. And so in our opinion, just if all you did was just did 10 percent less bonds, in our opinion, given the starting point of negative term premium, 2 percent <laughs> as far as the eye can see, you know, rate cuts priced in as far as the eye can see. I think if you all you did was just do 10% less bonds and put it on the short end of the curve, you probably significantly outperform. Uh, but we have obviously other, um, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, elements of this particular uh, process, whether it be our top-down risk management overlay, where we use our weather model uh, to infuse volatility targeting to the strategy. Now uh, we use our bottom-up risk management overlay in terms of our volatility adjusted momentum signal to infuse dynamic, dynamic position sizing into the strategy. And ultimately, our, our bottom-up kind of grid regime forecasting and now casting uh, tools allow us to understand the factor selection that should be associated with this as well. And so we've back-tested everything that ticks through the lens of, of factor dispersion, um, you know, annualized expected returns, percent positive ratio, volatility, covariance, expected sharp ratios. We summarize all that here. And ultimately, this is our, you know, when we think about that 30 and that 10 component, because we were totally fine accepting beta as our, as our you, know, you know, cherry for the, the 60 part, but what we're not fine with is accepting fixed income beta as the 40 part. And so we use this process Again, in conjunction with our weather model and some of the other quantitative tools uh, that we use to help investors manage, you know, macro cycle risk, we use those tools to help us identify the right factors in fixed income, the right factors for that 10% quote unquote macro bucket that will allow us to consistently outperform 60-40 going forward. So uh, I think this is a better mousetrap for what I believe will be increasingly proven to be an antiquated investment strategy that was born on just really kind of perfect storm of outcomes for the past 25 to 30 years. Yeah, I think I think we actually were have discussed this on some podcast somewhere. The the idea of pick sixty forty, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> just um, talking <laughs> about the fact that we may have seen peak sixty forty both in its efficacy, sharp ratio, and and maybe adoption, but it always takes time for these things to bleed through. I I, I often think of the um, the framework that Marquetta pro provided with their 
you know, RMS, their, their first responders, yeah. second responders and diversifiers. Um, we are in that same sort of global macro camp, right? We, you know, um, our products can, can incorporate shorts as well, which is, which is a nice additional, uh, suite of, um, uh, potential outcomes, but you know, the first responders are sort of that long volatility and long duration, uh, type, uh, sovereign bonds, right? But if you're not going to have the opportunity to benefit from those long duration bonds, which have been such a core piece and such an effective piece for a couple of decades, well, what do you do? Well, the second responders are those, those trend followers, those CTAs, those global yep. macro, um, areas where you're thinking through, um, the potential causalities and relationships, as you've as you've pointed out, and actually having some allocation in your portfolio, in order to provide that 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 ballast of diversification, you know we we've started on a path of return stacking as well, which is which is building a suite of products where we layer in on top of the beta the the managed futures trend, in order to try and alleviate the um, um, the tracking error. You know, which I think is a problem as we transition from 60-40 to this new world. But you know what'll happen then? It'll be like, well, what do I need all this beta buried into my good stuff for? And they'll toss that away and they'll be like, give me the global macro 100% on its own. 60-40 is dead. As as always is the case as we, we go through the experiential learning uh, as investors do. But um, I, I think that that framework is, like you said, keep it simple, keep it systematic. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, Love that. that. Thank you, man. Yeah, yeah no, you're 100%. 100%. Like, Man Group did a big study on this. Uh, their work is backed up, I want to say, by EQR as well, which is trend following is the best um, strategy for an inflationary era. Now, again, right. if we're tracking it, trending at 3% core PCE. We can have a discussion on whether or not that's an inflationary era. I suspect it will feel like an inflationary era, given the starting point of negative term premium in the bond market, right? Like, that will feel like an inflationary era. Yeah in the context of a bond market that thinks 2% is the, the norm and you know it's okay to have negative term premium. Uh, you could easily see term premium back up another 150 basis points from here and be totally normal. Like that, yeah. we could go to 550 on the 10 year for no reason other than term premium backing up and that should be normal. People would freak out and lose their minds if that happened, <laughs> but, but, but it, it would be very normal. So like, as a matter of fact, let me just show a chart of term premium so I can, folks can get to understand uh, what I mean by this. <laughs> and so I, I, I had this chart in our deck for, for quarters now, and I keep having to explain the same concept to, to bond bulls, which is you're buying a market that's basically like a thousand times earnings, you know, <laughs> you know like, and so, you know, so this, uh, this, this shaded area chart shows the uh, term premium for the 10 year. And again, what term premium is, is the excess return you get uh, as an investor for, for locking in your money on, on, a, on a specified duration relative to the return you would get for just rolling over, you know, shorter term debt. Uh, for that pretend, you know, for that extending period of time, um, that's different from the term spread, which a lot of folks are quoting for, you know, with respect to the business cycle, you know, tens, twos, ten year, three month. Uh, that's a little bit different. This is more of a wonky uh, concept. And so we, you know, been in the last kind of four or five years in this really negative term premium regime, which is like, you know, you go back to the late '80s, and again, we're not going back to the late '80s or the early '80s. Term premium peaked somewhere around five, six hundred basis points over. You, know, you look at a mean on this chart, it's probably somewhere around 250 to 300 basis points uh, in terms of where term premium are. We're at minus 37 basis points now. So again, we could back up like 250 basis points just to get to the mean in something <laughs> that is 
really technically not being controlled by, you know, policy expectations, inflation expectations. This is purely just, you know, what has become a supply and demand imbalance uh, in the treasury market because central banks have been responding to slow inflation, you know, by, you know, consistently and, 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 and persistently, you know, expanding the, their balance sheet and their, their overall share of these, these uh, sovereign debt markets. But I think that's likely to change unless the Fed, if we're right, if our structural inflation model is right, um, and calling for, let's say, th the high end of that forecast range is, 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 is accurate, and we are now trending at 3% core PC inflation, which is actually where we are currently. If you look at it on a three-month annualized basis, we're at 3.3% to a 3.2% for Supercore. We'll get the numbers next Monday, I think, or next Monday or Tuesday to confirm that. But, you know, that's kind of where we are today. But if we don't go much further below that, folks are going to start to get concerned that 3% is the new two in, yeah. in economic terms. <laughs> what happens if 3% is not the new two in policy terms? If the Fed doesn't respond to that, then they're obviously going to be leaning against uh, the economy and financial markets. And I just don't think they have the political will or desire or, or they will be able to do that and get away with that uh, in this fourth turning uh, decade. I think they're going to have to, you know, kind of acquiesce to this, you know, this demand for populism, whether it be through monetary or fiscal policy from from all these Western nations. Yeah. And a, and a good plug on for, for Neil Howe's update. Yeah, right, uh, my former colleague, book, uh, Neil, his new yeah, book. Yeah, <clears throat> great stuff. So we've got, we've got about, I only got about only about three or four minutes left. Is there anything that we didn't think of asking you, Darius, that, that um, you would be eager to put out there as we, uh, as we wrap? Uh, not necessarily on the market prognostication front, right? Folks, we, we publish research six days a week, sometimes seven days a week here at 42 Macro. So if folks want to get our research and, and our you know, market prognostications, they can certainly come check us out at 42 macrocom uh, but I think just from the perspective of like, to me, what's been very instructive in helping me, you know, generate positive outcomes for our clients this year, you know, I do want to, you know, we, there's not a large list of bulls who were bullish earlier in the year, uh, but, you know, when we pivoted bullish back in January, I want to say that was a pretty uh, decent call relative to that. You know, we got incrementally bullish in early May on the stock market, got incrementally bearish on the bond market in early May. These are some big calls that, that were made and they're all based on the process, but that's not why we're here, right? What I'm trying to do is, is a lot of those process, those calls came from is re going back to the drawing board during that dark malaise I was having in Q4 of last year and really reinventing, reinventing myself and focusing on the behavioral aspects of my process, really reorganizing my process, figuring out what to weight higher in this whole, you know, kind of scheme of things that we do from a research and risk management signaling perspective. And so the last thing I would say to anyone paying attention to this is just go back and focus on yourself as an investor. We spend way too much damn time trying to figure out what is going to happen in the economy, what's going to happen in financial markets. And the reality is less than 50% of you, what you hear is going to become true, right? So as opposed to just it's take 100% of that time, cut that time you have in half, and then work yes. on yourself as an investor. And I guarantee you have better outcomes than someone who just spends 100% of that time consuming research that only 50% is going to be true. Wise words, 50% at best, I bet. At best. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm being very kind. I'm being very you know. kind. <laughs> when, you, when you put that in simpler terms, that's just, that's literally a coin toss. Yeah, it's, totally. It's, yeah, exactly. It's so uh, random. There's, there's lots of research that shows it's yeah. slightly worse than a coin toss, but anyway. Yeah, totally. <laughs> not, not even a coin toss. Exactly. You guys are quants too, so you understand you're that. Even, you're not even likely to get a coin toss result. Exactly. That's pretty good. Exactly. <laughs> that's a great recap. Thank, thanks, Darius. Thank you so much. That was, uh, that was a fabulous roundup of this year's economics and, and, and your outlook for the coming for the coming period. Um, Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Great man. to have you. <laughs> Terrific to see you again, too. Likewise, man. Enjoy your vacation. Thanks, sir. Mike, appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. I'll catch you guys next time.